Hey, Dr. Soul, pleasure to have you on. Welcome to the Primal Side. Hey, thanks so much for having me. No problem. And for those who don't know, Dr. Sabrina Salt is a neuropathic medical doctor in Scottsdale, Arizona. She has been practicing regenerative and anti-aging medicine since 2013. And over the years, she has mastered various treatment modalities such as prolotherapy, PRP, adipose, and bone marrow-derived stem cells, as well as birth tissue biologics such as, uh, amin- excuse me, I'm going to butcher this, uh, aminotic allograph and ex- exosomes. She is known for creating concert- comprehensive and custom-tailored treatment plans for her patients, which include things like animal-based or carnivore diet, lifestyle changes, nutritional supplements, bioidentical hormones, peptide therapies, and of course, regenerative in- infect- injections. In her time, Dr. Solt enjoys reading, traveling, and spending time with her husband and two children. And we had Zach on here actually a few weeks ago. He did really well, answered some really good questions for us and uh, told his story. I'd like to hear your story of uh, how you came to this way of eating, what you did in the past, and what kind of got you here. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. So Zach was actually the one who did it first in our family. And um, like you said, I, I'm a naturopathic doctor, so we are basically educated that plants are the best thing in the world. So it was a lot of um, cognitive dissonance for me to actually see him say, oh, I'm going to try this carnivore diet. And I thought, you're absolutely crazy. You're going to die. You absolutely, you need vegetables, you need plants. And what happened was that he didn't like, he actually got better in real time in front of my own two eyes. So I thought, okay, maybe there is something to this diet. And I started, I decided to try it for myself. And I did much more of a slow descent than he did. I started by just removing the salad that I ate for lunch every single day. And just doing that, I dropped a bunch of fat in my lower abdomen. It was just gone. My chronic pain that I had every afternoon went away. And I was like, man, this is pretty, this is interesting. So then the last two things that I had to cut out of my diet, because my diet was already really restrictive at that point. I had a lot of digestive issues. So a lot of food intolerances, So I was already gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, corn-free. Like I was already really restrictive. The last two things that were left were um, oats and rice and then some fruit. So I guess three things. The fruit for me, it took me a little bit longer to get rid of just because I was getting a little bit of palate fatigue early on where I would eat my steak for lunch and then I just really wouldn't enjoy the taste in my mouth afterwards. I would just want like that little sweetness. Um, That's pretty much gone away at this point. And I have been full like carnivore carnivore for at least the last six seven months wow wow um and what are the the biggest changes in your life since you've been carnivore what are some things that you realize that you know sometimes when people come into this way of eating they do it for one way and then they get like a plethora of other benefits which you don't realize like for me i didn't realize how much anxiety i had before before i did this and now i'm like so calm and relaxed and um another thing is like my dandruff and my acne just gone. And uh, we're going to talk about a little bit of that as well. But I had no intentions on clearing those. I wanted to get rid of my IBS with this. So I did that. And I got so many other benefits. What have you seen throughout the last? Yeah, similar. I came into this with IBS. So digestive concerns that had been present in my life for as long, literally as long as I could remember decades. And so those that actually took a pretty, pretty long amount of time to heal. I don't think I've I think still right now, I don't, it's interesting because I want to like test things, right? I want to see how far my healing has come. I want to see, could I tolerate eating like, you know, really, really well cooked broccoli or something, but then I don't want to, you know, I don't, I don't want to actually consume that. Yeah, I me neither. I, exactly. Any value, you know, I know what I'm saying? I know um, but it's, it's the curiosity of how much have I healed knowing where I came from. And I think ultimately that's why a lot of people do come to this diet. Like you were saying, we want to heal things. So for me, it was the IBS. I was having some skin issues. I was having chronic pain. I had anxiety. I would get brain fog. And I was too, I was like biohacking. Like as a doctor, I had access to pretty much anything you could imagine supplement wise, gear wise, like treatment plan wise, prescription wise. Like I tried all of it. Like and nothing really moved the needle for me as fast and as well as carnivore has. Yeah, a real real food always wins and real food always heals more than, than a pill or a prescription or anything like that. And um, that's something that even you as a doctor can say too, which is it's not um, you know common to hear that. So speaking of anything like that, are there any supplements that you take or recommend to those starting carnivore or 
who have been doing carnivore for a while? Are there any supplements that you think of off the top of your head that somebody should use? So it's interesting. My whole thought process on supplements is probably different than a lot of other naturopathic doctors or people in the functional medicine space. I think that supplements should be used to compress time, to get you to the results that you want sooner, not to supplement bad habits. Ultimately, I still think that you should be getting most of your nutrition from food, but if there are nutrient deficiencies that you've accumulated over years of having a really, really poor diet, I think that yes, we can use supplements strategically to do that repletion and to get you back. That being said, I am a fan of supplements that are based off, that are coming from natural sources. So uh, personally, I don't know if you know this, we actually have an oyster supplement. And the reason that we sourced this was because oysters are like the most underrated superfood as far as micronutrient, <laughs> yeah, micronutrient levels, bioavailability of them. And my husband and I, we would get oysters every Friday. Today's actually Oyster Friday when we're recording this. So we're going to be getting oysters this afternoon because at Whole Foods, they're only a dollar a piece and they'll shuck them for you. Um, and we would post pictures of it every Friday and people would say things like, I can't get oysters where I'm at, or I wish I liked the taste of oysters. I know they're so good for me. And I was like, okay, I see a real need here. Like we need to be able to get more oysters to people because I mean, we need to get the, the nutrition into humans. So I started looking on um, Amazon. Well, first I have access to this like online supplement dispensary that's only for physicians. And there was no oyster products on there whatsoever. Cause my thought process was, well, if you can get like liver in a capsule, what, what if right. you get oysters in a capsule, you know? And so then I went to Amazon and everything on Amazon was like gimmicky. Like they had fillers in them. They couldn't actually tell me how many oysters were in each serving. Um, they didn't test for heavy metals. They didn't actually test for actual purity to see what the, what the full nutrient profile was on them. Fast forward, doing more research, come across this marine biologist in Ireland who actually owns the fishery where they get all the oysters from. And we were actually able to source our product and create our product with him. So we have a pure oyster product. Each serving is like seven oysters and it's under $2 a serving. And it's, it's a pretty solid product. And I've been taking that every day for about the last six months. Wow. Wow. Do you think yeah. that, um, you ever think that they're too nutrient dense to take that much every day, or it's not as much as, as uh, liver? because I mean, are you a person that recommends the liver supplements too? We can talk about organ supplements. Yeah. When I first started, I was doing organ supplements for energy levels. I came into this really depleted, if I'm being honest. And I've I did the labs yeah. to check my actual micronutrient levels. Cause you're right. I don't think that you should be prescribing these things willy nilly. I don't think that you should be taking them consistently unless you're actually getting the data. That being said, again, most things are going to be somewhat safe. You'd have to eat, take a lot of these oyster products for most people to overdose on them, right? Seven yeah. oysters isn't technically a lot, especially when you actually look at the nutrient profiles, you're usually only getting about 50% of the RDA of certain micronutrients. So it's still a great supplement to a diet, assuming you're getting the rest of the RDA from the other sources that you're eating. With liver, with like things like liver, yes, I do think that you could take too much of that in just in the context of the vitamin A uh, levels. Yes, you can get too much of it. But I think for a lot of people, again, if you're coming into this super depleted, um, like I said, my levels were super low. I had low minerals basically across the board, which are pretty essential for most functions in the body. So right. I knew that doing this level of repletion was going to be helpful for me. Um, and again, I can, I can bet that almost anybody coming into this is going to be in a similar situation, especially if they're coming from the standard American diet or a very plant heavy diet. Cause a lot, a lot of people don't know is that yes, plants do have micronutrients or anti-nutrients in them but they will block the absorption of the micronutrients from the food that you are taking in any way. So it's kind of like double whammy in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that um, organ supplements are great if you can't get them raw like I do. I think having that as a backup option is good, but I always recommend if you can get the real thing, have it uh, no matter what kind of food it is. Um, and yeah, a lot of people don't have access to oysters all day. It's expensive stuff um, most of the time. So you know, it's a good product. It's a good idea. Um, how about if you have someone that comes to you and they're vegan, let's go with the counter argument. How many supplements do they have to take? Uh, and I know it's a lot. So which ones? Gosh, okay. So when it comes to nutrition wise, talking about that, we have kind of two main categories, right? We have our essential macronutrients and we have our essential micronutrients. And in our macronutrients, what's essential in there is going to be protein and fat. Carbs are non-essential. Right. If you think about the vegan diet, they're basically only consuming non-essential carbs. They're not getting a lot of our, what we'll call like the essential proteins and essential fats. 
And even if they are, they're getting them in the least bioavailable form possible because they're getting them from plant sources or other artificial manufactured sources, seed oils, that kind of garbage. On the other side with our micronutrients, so they're going to be missing proper amino acid profiles. So we have essential amino acids that we actually have to consume ideally from animal protein because they're in the right ratios for our best usage. There's also going to be essential vitamins and there are vitamins that you actually can't get in a vegan diet, even if you ate properly, like you have to supplement with B12, for example, that is something that is absolutely right. in the vegan Creatine, diet, right? Creatine, taurine, all these carcinogens, yes. these big ones yes. that, uh, that just don't show up in the plant kingdom. They're just not there. Um, so, okay. and, and EPA and DHA as well, just don't, they, they don't show up as well. So uh, it's at least if you're going to do that, eat fish, that would be my recommendation. If you're going to do that, try and eat fish. I, I know it's hard, but uh, people are taking down the wrong route sometimes. People, um, especially in today's world where everything is uh, is backwards. So um, what would you say to someone that that sees modern advice and, and uh, tries to go plant-based? How do you skew them away from that? What would you tell them? Gosh, I try to lead with just the the essential nutrient argument, if you even want to call it that, because it's not an argument. It's this is what you actually need to survive. And ultimately, I think that you, there could just be a lot of education done on it as far as, okay, maybe if you're doing this for animal rights, for example, maybe we talk about regenerative farming practices versus monocropping and how many right. animal lives lost can be you know, damaged in that regard. Um, Cause you know, you have these people and they're trying to honestly do it from the goodness of their own heart in that way, but maybe they're just uneducated and that's fine, right? We can, we're, we're all ignorant for everything that we don't know. And that's okay. It only becomes a problem if you kind of, if you hold on to that ignorance and you aren't open to seeing any other sides. Um, and then of course it's, it just becomes down, it comes down to how do you actually nourish a body? How do you actually work towards your goals? And what I usually invite these people to do is consider, well, where in your life do you feel like your health isn't where you'd like it to be? Um, I see this in a lot of <clears throat> middle-aged women who are mainly plant-based. They start gaining a ton of fat in their midsection and their, and their thighs, and they can't seem to figure out what's going on. And it is their diet, right? They end up actually in a starvation state. So their body thinks that they need to put on all this extra fat as a source of fuel because they're not getting enough micronutrients in. So it thinks, again, it's starving. Yeah, definitely. And and for the calories in out or argument, the calories out of them are drastically down. So people don't understand that hormones play a, a major effect on calories out. So, you know, um, however, yeah, I think that I've, I've heard the stories of so many women that tried a plant-based diet and they eventually came to red meat because of their gut microbiome, because something was wrong. They developed some sort of autoimmune or something like that. They were told it wasn't fixed. So let's talk a little bit about gut health and um, how is your microbiome healed on a carnivore diet? How is it the ultimate anti-inflammatory diet and why is this important? Yes. Oh my gosh. So a lot of people will come to the carnivore diet as like a version of the, an elimination diet, or at least that's what we, you know we would call it in our in clinical practices. You're going to eliminate everything else besides just animal-based products because we know your body can break them down really easily, high bioavailability, easy on the gut, allows it to heal. What I've noticed, and this probably seems obvious in the community, but carnivores don't need probiotics. Carnivores don't need prebiotics. Carnivores don't need gut healing powders. And so then you want to just make this logical connection that well, maybe it's the eating of the plants that causes the gut dysfunction. And that's why you need those things to be able to correct it, but you'll never actually correct it when you're still eating those things. And at least that was my personal experience too. Like I said, I did every gut healing protocol from every well-known research-backed company you can think of, spent literally hundreds, if not thousands of dollars on trying to heal my gut. And again, all it did was take me removing plants for it to completely go away. And I have had no issues and it's just really kind of this stark difference. And it makes you wonder like, okay, we have all this research on the microbiome. Everyone thinks the microbiome is the greatest thing in the world. And we need to be nourishing it. We need to be giving it prebiotics and probiotics and feeding fermented foods and like plants and all this stuff. And it makes you wonder like, well, maybe the microbiome, the way that people say it, as far as being so beneficial for us really isn't that beneficial for us. Maybe it doesn't need to be doing all the things that it says that we say that it does, because maybe that actually isn't working in our favor. Maybe it isn't working in our favor that it's producing more serotonin in times that we don't necessarily need it to. Maybe that's actually leading to heightened 
senses yeah. of anxiety and stuff in some people. Um, and so again, I don't have any actual research to prove this besides just anecdotes from carnivores, but again, nobody that I've come across in the carnivore community that has actually been on this diet for a decent amount of time has needed any sort of gut healing outside of the diet itself. Definitely. Definitely. I think that, um, the, the most triggering thing is when I see a post on Instagram about, you know, healing your gut microbiome and you see these people eating beans and like all these leaves. And I'm like, Oh my God, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? Um, and then, worse. And, and then the whole thing with, um, probiotics, I, I just think to myself and I'm like, why would I want to take someone's random sample of gut bacteria and then dump it into my own? How does that do anything for me? Um, you know, there's a chance that they might've had a healthier gut, but that's different bacteria going into my body. Why would I want to do that when I could just ferment my own body naturally? Um, so yeah, you don't need all these fancy fermented foods. You don't need anything crazy like that to have a proper gut. You just need to eat real food from nature that comes from animals. And it's really that easy and that simple. Um, but that's what I think about probiotics. Yep. Same. I don't, I don't think that they are, I don't think that they're useful for carnivores. I think that when you have gut dysfunction as a plant eater, there might be an argument for using them. Uh, but ultimately, no, I don't think that they Yeah, are. that's the same thing with my, my protein recommendations too. They drastically changed um, for my clients and what I recommend as far as protein goes, because when you're getting the most bioavailable protein on um, an animal only diet, you need less. And same thing with a lot of the micronutrients, you just need less because you're getting such usage by the small doses that you're, you're eating. So um, it's powerful stuff. So you know, normally you hear the one gram per pound of body weight myth that you do need if you're eating a plant-based diet, but I've gotten away with 0 0.7, 0 0.8 grams per pound of body weight easily and built plenty of muscle with it. So there is a lot of people that build muscle without and, and have an adequate amount of protein in their diet without, you know, plants. So that's another, that's another point. That's such a, that's such a good point to bring up as a, as the protein requirement conversation, because yes, I do believe that we should be getting our proteins specifically from whole food animal sources, if at all possible for a couple reasons, especially for women. So what I've encountered working with women who have just, most women have some sort of body image issues, weight issues, issues with eating in the past. They've been led to believe that they have to eat salads, that they have to diet, that they have to restrict and most often than not, not only do we retrain their metabolism, but we have to retrain their fullness and hunger cues um, and basically the leptin and ghrelin signaling in their bodies. And the best way to do that is to actually make them consume that protein in the whole food sources and actually chew it and digest it and retrain their body again to actually accept that signaling. When you consume something like a shake and it's already pre-digested, you're not going to get that same sort of signaling because it's going to pass through your system a lot quicker. Your ghrelin and your leptin are going to be mismatched still. You still might overconsume, or you still might not actually be able to, you know, feel that fullness that you, that you should have got from that volume of protein or that amount of protein. Um, that's not to say that it can't be useful in a pinch. Like I would much rather have a quick protein shake on hand if I'm traveling versus having to, you know, stop at a place that might have a less than ideal meal for me. Right. But it shouldn't be a replacement. And this is even part of the collagen conversation, right? People think, oh, I'll just have some collagen protein. Uh, but what a lot of people don't know is that collagen isn't technically part of your daily protein requirement because it lacks tryptophan. And this that's technically an essential amino acid. So you're not getting your full protein requirement because of that. Right. No, it's, it's very triggering to watch people. I mean, I'm around a gym, so that's what I see. I see my, tra my fellow trainer buddies scooping collagen. I see them scooping greens powders and it just, I just don't even, I don't even get involved. That's all I'm going to say. Um, Knife in the heart almost. It's yeah. And again, it's not that collagen isn't a good, it couldn't be good as an addition, but it shouldn't be a replacement. If definitely. it's something that you, yeah, it's something that you, and cause you can do different things. Like there's different types of collagen you can get. If you have joints that need to heal, if you want you know to address your skin more, help your hair grow a little bit better. You can absolutely consume them, but not in replacement of your animal sources. Yeah, I feel the same way. I, I agree with you. Um, my next question is, uh, is why do you think autoimmune conditions go away on a carnivore diet? Um, what have you personally seen with clients that you had clients that went carnivore and they're like, wow, I never thought I would heal this, but I did. Like, what are some of those conditions that, that got healed and fixed? And why do you think that is? Yeah. So autoimmune disorders, nine times out of 10, 
you can have the gene for it, but it's something in your environment that triggers it to actually turn on. And most of our environmental triggers come from our diet. If you think about it, our diet is the one thing that we are exposed to consistently on a daily basis. And if what you're doing with your diet is constantly turning on inflammation, eventually your body is just going to like throw its hands up and say, I can't do this anymore. I can't keep all these checks and balances in place to prevent these other things from happening. And so you'll sometimes get that turned on. Another thing that can sometimes trigger autoimmune disorders is a really severe uh, trauma. So this can be a physical trauma, mental trauma, emotional trauma, spiritual trauma, whatever it is. If you meet somebody who has an autoimmune disorder and you ask them, did anything happen in the six months to a year before you got diagnosed? Again, most of the time they will tell you, yes, I had a car accident. I got a divorce. I lost a loved one. And something like that will trigger that. What's interesting is when they start the carnivore diet, a couple of things happen. One, you're turning off that negative environmental signaling that tells your body there's a lot of inflammation coming in and allows it to actually go into a heal and repair sedate. The second thing on the part of the trauma is that by flooding your body with all of the essential nutrients that it actually needs, you actually turn up your resilience. So you can actually work through stuff that might've been damaging to you in the past. And if you interviewed my husband with his um, history, did he share about like his history of the, the drug use and things like that? That came from a very traumatic childhood. He's been able to work through a lot of that just by means of being on diet. Now he didn't have, he actually did have an autoimmune disorder. He, he dealt with uh, Crohn's disease, right. but so again, history of trauma can definitely lead to these things. Carnivore diet with its bountiful essential nutrients turns up your resilience because it turns up how well your body can then handle, handle future stressors. As far as what I've seen in clinical practice heal, rheumatoid arthritis is, has been a really, really big one. Um, any just all chronic joint pain, chronic body-wide joint dysfunction. I've also seen a lot of people heal um, Hashimoto's or at least put that into remission on paper, um, which is an autoimmune thyroid disorder. And uh, what's another one? I've seen lichen sclerosis happen. And that's a disease that can happen to women where they actually get these like scaly patches and adhesions in their, on their vulva region. Uh, what else? Sjogren's is another one that I've seen. I've see, even seen people reverse dementia or at least, you know, yeah. A, dramatic change in we, it we come to think about um alzheimer's and how that mm -hmm. kind of gets started and it's not really discovered until recently um there's a lot of these diseases are just not discovered until recently and there's new ones every day and we keep naming them instead of fixing them so um well, yeah, the reason that we name them is because so the traditional medical model has a drug to match to them all diseases at their root are, is just inflammation gone wrong or inflammation that's right. been widespread for too long. And how did it manifest in your system? And that's really all it is. So yeah, we go back and look a few hundred years ago, there, a few hundred years ago, we've been around for a long time. There were not rates of heart disease. There were not rates of cancer. It was rare to see someone that was fat. It was really rare. Uh, I remember someone telling me on this podcast that a uh, hundred years ago or so, you had to pay somebody to see a fat person. It was like a source of like entertainment. Um, and now you have, now people pay me as a trainer to make them unfat. So uh, it's funny how the world's changed. Um, but a lot of it's a cycle. A lot of it is a cycle of eating bad food. And I know I was wrapped up in that cycle. I lost a lot of weight with uh, this way of eating and um, in general. So if you're that big, it's because of sugar addiction and there's no other way around it. And I hope that people can realize that it's unfortunate, but 99% plus of people here are addicted to sugar. So let's talk a little bit about the cycle of, of eating bad food and leading to a chronic disease, because it is a cycle. That's what we can call it is you need a hit of sugar every few hours. And if you don't get the hit of sugar, you get crashes, you get cranky. And when you finally get that hit after years and years and years, some sort of chronic disease or inflammation builds up. Yeah. Sugar is very destructive in general. And again, like we said, carbs are non-essential. You actually don't need them to run any process in the body. And to your point, right, we have a really big incidence these days of people who are overweight, addicted to sugar, and most of the time, it's actually not their fault. And this is what I really hope people take from this, right? It's not your fault. You've been taught the wrong information. You've been given, you've been presented with all these really hyper palatable food-like items at the grocery stores that promise convenience, promise to be heart healthy on the label, promise, promise, promise. And most people, again, they just... They aren't educated in this regard and that's okay. Not everybody is meant to be a nutritionist. Not everybody is meant to go through this and they shouldn't necessarily be penalized for 
not knowing, right? And even even if you are a nutritionist, if you're educated, yeah. if you're educated, you're learning from the masters, you think plant based, high fiber, high grains, and uh, yeah. recommend seed oils and limit saturated fat. So no one knows. It's just no. it's unfortunate that's the common advice, and uh, <laughs> it's all because of big pharma, big government controlling everything, uh, everything in our world, and it's so unfortunate. So. Yeah, it's, it's a cycle. People have to learn how to break out of the cycle. What's what's your easiest way to get over sugar addiction? Um, mm-hmm. If you, because obviously when somebody starts carnivore, they're addicted to sugar ninety nine percent of the time. Yep. So, um, how do you get over that? I know people get cravings the first few weeks. What do you tell people? Oh, uh, yeah. So it's so interesting, and I usually try to customize this based on who I know is coming into my office. But you know, I want to say one more thing on the other side of yeah, it's not their fault it then becomes, once they realize that they're sick, they're unhealthy, it does then become their responsibility to fix it. And nobody can do it for them. There's not, there's no medication that can outdo this. There's no, nobody can do it for you. It does become like a personal and inside job. And I think that's where like, as the carnivore community, we need to stop. Cause I don't know if you see this on like the interwebs where we kind of just like get at each other about, oh, you're not doing carnivore enough. You're not doing carnivore my way. You're not whatever. And it becomes more I, of this like infighting. I don't think it's as much as our community as it is in some plant-based communities. So Maybe. I don't know. I, I like, I love our community. I think, I just think that the, the, the organs are pushed very hard. I think that the sticks of, bu- eating sticks of butter are pushed very hard. And uh, there are some people that take it to the extreme. So you know, but other yeah. other than that, you hear every day I get comments, every day I get messages. Oh my God, I tried carnivore. I fixed this. I healed this. I'm not fat anymore. Like I feel great, you know, all these comments. And um, that's why I think the community is always going to be strong no matter what is because it's built on such a, a fascinating way of eating. I agree. Well, this is what kind of where I was going with this is that, yes, in this community, I think that the energy is best spent helping people that are coming to it, right? So we run a, a carnivore Facebook group and we, we have people coming in and our whole mood for this group is kindness and education. So we're not going to like shame you if you come in and you say, hey, I'm trying carnivore, but I'm still addicted to sugar or I'm still doing this. Like we will work with you even if you are not 100% of the way there, because that's what happened to me. My, like The reason my husband and I made our own Facebook group is because we were in another one and I was still like, like I was explaining earlier in my descent into carnivore. And the people there lost their minds because I wasn't a hundred percent carnivore yet. I was like on my own healing journey and I never want somebody to be deterred from this way of eating because somebody else has a dogmatic view of how they should be doing it. So if somebody is coming in with a really massive sugar addiction, it can take time to get rid of that because not only is there the actual physiological addiction to that sugar and needing that hit and you're getting that dopamine response and all that good stuff. But there's a psychological aspect of, well, why were you medicating it with sugar in the first place? Is there some sort of trauma that you're trying to heal? Is there some sort of feeling that you're trying to suppress? Like, where is that actually coming from? And sometimes that does involve doing things like going to therapy, seeking help, doing trauma, releasing exercises. And again, it, sometimes it is just the physiological. If that's the case, what I try to tell people to do is do keto as best you can throughout most of the day and save your carbs for nighttime. Because what this does is it still allows maximum fat burning, maximum amount of time in ketosis. You're going to eat carbs before bed. There can be an argument for, okay, maybe they'll help you sleep better, but you're shortening the window of time where you even have an opportunity to eat it. And you ultimately will likely eat less because you've been, you've filled yourself up all day long. So that's my like hack for that is yes, eat the carbs that you want to eat, go for the treat that you want to eat, but you're only allowed to do it between these times. And eventually the hope is that, okay, they build up their nutrition so much that one day they just no longer have the desire for it. Their body now feels so satisfied. They've built up their resilience. They've built up their micronutrients that they just don't want it anymore. And I've seen this with clients. I've seen this with myself. Like it, it is a strategy that can work. Um, but of course it's not all, all the way carnivore, like some people will say, but I think it's a win for people because if it's going to get them to their ultimate goal, perfect. That's super interesting. I I hear that if you're going to eat carbohydrates, the common advice is to do it before workout uh, if you're going to do a little bit of carbohydrates. But I never thought of that with addiction, having it at night. Um, I don't know. That's a tough one because you got to be really careful. You get a lot of people and that are insulin resistant. And one of the biggest ways you could tell if somebody's insulin resistant if, is if they get the sugar cravings at, at night and they get uh, hunger cravings in the middle of the night. That's a big one. 
Yeah, I mean, but again, I think- my goal is to maximize the amount of time that they're in ketosis. So if somebody is consuming carbs before a workout, they're taking themselves out of ketosis and they're going to start that carb carb craving cycle earlier in the day. So, and most of the time, the people that are coming into this usually aren't people who are already physically active in enough of a degree that it would make a difference for them to have carbs before a workout. Like they probably don't even need that. They probably got enough energy stores on their body. Oh yeah. They can no, do without it, I know? think so too. I, I, that makes sense. That definitely makes sense. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's give a, how about some tips for beginners that are fresh in a carnivore, something that you wish you knew before you started mine uh, is easily don't pile on the dairy and eat until satiated because those two things would have helped me so much when I first started uh, because I came from a period of caloric restriction. So when I started carnivore, all I saw was you don't have to count calories. You don't have to track anything. You just eat to your full and then you do it again when you're hungry. So I did that. I gained 20 pounds in the first few weeks. Um, it was rough. It was unfortunate. I also saw the the topping everything with butter. I saw people with steaks with butter on top, eggs with a ton of butter on top, added butter, eating it, like spiting it. And yeah, 20 pounds of weight gain after that much dairy was not fun. So um, yeah. what do you recommend when you're starting carnivore to somebody that's fresh into it? That's like, where the hell do I start? Yeah, honestly, if somebody's really, really brand new, I think it can go a couple different ways. Like my husband, for example, he went just cold meat, salt, water, like dove right into it. That's his demeanor his disposition he's his person he just does that i was much slower so like i said i just started by removing the salad that i had for lunch every day and so i'll tell people that pick one meal that you can easily make carnivore so if you're already eating breakfast and maybe you're having eggs and toast maybe you switch to eggs and bacon or eggs and ground beef like make this really really tiny shift that's not so far out of your norm because you're gonna be more likely to stick to it once that becomes easy and a habit add something else. And then we end up with habit stacking, right? right? You're making these small little shifts that again, little by little, a little becomes a lot. This is a quote from one of the, from this other person that I follow. And I really do believe in that. I don't, I think that ultimate success comes from these tiny steps that we take over time, ultimately moving towards the direction of our goal. When it comes to dairy, I'm with you on that. I don't think that dairy is for everybody all of the time. And because there's more to just the dairy issue than lactose intolerance, and people don't really understand this. So in dairy, there's actually, there's three components to it. So you have the fat part, which is just pure fat. That's what we call non-antigenic for most people. And that's usually where you get ghee from, butter, heavy cream, usually fine for most people. Um, The other part of that is the sugar part of dairy, which is the lactose. People have lactose intolerance. You usually know this by the time you're, you know, a child because you end up, you eat dairy, you end up with pretty violent stomach aches, diarrhea. Some people can develop lactose intolerance as they get older, but again, you'll likely know going into this if you can't, if you can't do that. The other part to dairy that a lot of people don't know about is the protein structures in dairy. And this is where you see the difference between things like A1 protein versus A2 protein, right? An A2 milk or an A2 yogurt. But even then there's more nuance to it. So every time milk from dairy cow changes structure, it changes its protein structure, right? Because it shifts. So whether it's a hard cheese, a soft cheese, cottage cheese, yogurt, milk, kefir, whatever it is, that protein structure has changed. And some people are going to be better tolerant to certain protein structures than others. So for example, I can do yogurt, like full fat yogurt, just fine, but cheddar cheese will completely mess me up. And the only way to really figure that out for yourself is to test it over time. Um, or you can get like, a we, ha- we have a, a test called a dairy zoomer that we run in my office and it'll actually test each of the different protein structures. Um, but most people don't need to do that. It's just a matter of seeing what works for you. And when you are going to be testing something like this, it's important to give three days between, and between each thing that you try, because if you do have an inflammatory response to it, it takes about three days for it to go down. Are you a, a raw dairy person only, or do you recommend any pasteurized dairy at all? So um, yogurt, for example, you can't get raw because right. the nature of making yogurt is pasteurization is an application of heat. So that right. I don't worry about, but I'll get like the grass fed organic stuff. Um, when we can, like our local sprouts, will get raw dairy in and we'll like, I think we buy raw milk maybe every other month, like just as a, as something to have, like we'll give it to our kids. Uh, I like raw kefir a lot. I think that's, it's delicious. I like the tang of it, but again, maybe every other month, it's not like a regular thing in our house. Um, raw butter will sometimes get, there's a place local that sells it, but it's like a drive. So it's, 
again, it's not something that we really prioritize in the house, but it's like, oh, if we feel like, you know, we want to get it this month or whatever, we'll, we'll make the trip and we'll go get it. But it's Definitely. not. If you, if you prioritize dairy in a carnivore diet, you're essentially not having carnivore diet because those carbs, those carbs will stack up. Um, yes. You'd be surprised. Lactose. Yep. Stacks up high. Definitely. Um, and then also I, I like that you use dairy as a, a sort of a, every once in a while too. That's how, that's how it should be used. But when you are doing, when you're starting carnivore, like I did, and I gained all that weight fast, I like to say to people that that weight gain is healthy. Like there, if you're eating the right foods, when you start carnivore, you're eating to your full, if you gain a few pounds, especially after being restrictive for so long, I think it's a healthy approach. I don't think there's anything harmful about that. Whereas a few years ago, I would have looked at that and been like, oh my God, you gained weight. Like, how could you gain weight? Like you're going to be fat again. Like not how it works you're not going to get fat off protein and fat um if you eat a species appropriate diet so how do you feel about that yeah i think there's a couple there's a couple nuances to that because ultimately there's three reasons why people gain weight and within these three reasons there's a bunch of sub nuances to them so the first one is that your body's simply trying to put store excess fuel if somebody comes into this diet from severe metabolic damage from years of restriction, your body still doesn't trust that there's going to be new nutrition coming in. So it's like, oh, there's lots of good stuff in here. Let's squirrel it away like a little hoarder, right? Now, the second reason is that your body is trying to actually use that fat tissue for hormone production, or there's already a hormone imbalance that's leading to that. So some degree of insulin resistance, leptin resistance, difficulty with ghrelin, maybe, uh, maybe their estrogen's really low, things like that. That can actually pack on extra weight too. Um, so that's something to be paying attention to. And then the third reason why people hold on to excess fat is due to actual high toxicity. So I had a mentor one time who said the great phrase, the solution to pollution is dilution. So if somebody has a lot of toxicity in their system, the body will actually put on excess fat to help dilute that. So it's not hurting you. I don't think that was the case in your situation. I think no. it was probably the first one where you came from caloric restriction and your body thought, wow, there's an abundance, let's hoard it. And then once it realized that it was safe and it felt safe to release that excess fuel, knowing that yes, more was going to come in. That's probably why things might've evened out for you. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think so as well. Um, let's talk a little bit about mental health with meat-based diets because, um, I came to this way of eating with no intentions to heal my mental health, but they just significantly improved. And I didn't even think about it until I looked back and I realized, Hey, I was really um, impatient back then. I was really antsy of a person. And now I'm like really calm and relaxed and always like, um, I don't know, in the zone, it feels like. So you can also talk about children and their mental health, because I've, I've heard stories of people on this podcast too, that have kids and they, after feeding their kids, plant a lot of plants and a lot of sugar, the kids are off the walls, the kids are just crying, screaming all day long. And the kids who eat meat turn into these honor students, they turn very smart, they're very calm, relaxed, and quiet and well behaved. So is there something behind that? Or is that just me? Because I, I hear these stories a lot um, about these drastic improvements in mental health. Mm -hmm. I agree with the mental health thing. Like I said, my per personally, my anxiety went away, brain fog went away. Um, my evening energy came back. So I was actually able to do things, you know, six, seven o'clock at night versus just vegging on the couch or watching TV or something. Um, I definitely think there's something to it because you're not taking in anything that's going to be inflaming the brain, right? You're not taking any anti-nutrients, any sugars, any bad oils. And in fact, all the saturated fat that you're eating is so beneficial for brain function because that's kind of what our brains are made of. So you actually can get better neurological function from just consuming more saturated fat in your diet, which I think is amazing for most people. Um, as far as kids go, yeah, we have two kids and we've, so our daughter is five. So she knew food before carnivore. So she's got a little bit of a sweet tooth. She never misses an opportunity to try to eat bad food, <laughs> bad food. We'll, we'll caveat right. that. Um, so we were actually just recently on a trip. We were on a plane and she sometimes will let them make, make her own choices. Cause she's five about what she's going to eat. And then we have the conversation with her after with, how do you feel what's happening? She ate those like Biscoff cookies that you get on the flights. They're terrible. I don't know if people have ever looked at these labels. It's literally like two different types of terrible flour, seed oils, and sugar. The worst, like if you could pick three things to hurt a person with, those would be them. Anyway, she ate those and her behavior afterwards, she lost her darn mind. She was flipping out, crying, feeling terrible. Her stomach hurt. 
And we were able to just kind of calmly point out to her like, hey, do you see how things changed after you ate those cookies? And she said, yes. And then she was presented with another opportunity to eat cookies again, not too long ago. And she said, no. So with kids, I think this is important, right? Children are smart. They are, they are tiny humans. They are, they're still just tiny humans. They're smart. They can figure things out. They understand things. They understand correlation. And for us, it's not so much about being dogmatic because we certainly don't want to do anything like instill an eating disorder at a later date by making so many rules and restrictions. It's a matter of teaching you how did this food make you feel? And she knows that she feels better when she eats animal products, when she eats, you know, carnivore, animal-based versus when she has crap. So I was super proud to actually see that she denied the cookie at the last opportunity. Um, Our little guy, he just turned two and he was basically starting on whole foods when we were carnivore. So he's really never known anything about carnivore. And there was actually one time where we saw him, he completely spit out a strawberry in exchange for a rib. And if that doesn't tell you about this kid's palate, like he loves meat, like for breakfast every day and make the kids ground beef and eggs and they scarf it down. It's amazing to see. I love it. And they are smart. They are well-behaved. My son has the most perfect teeth I've ever seen. Like so perfect. And if you're familiar with Dr. Weston A. Price and his research on a lot of these, um, a lot of, you know, historical humans and how their diets were, these ancestrally based diets that are around mainly meat, saturated fats, they all had perfect teeth. Right. So it's really cool to see. And, you know, this is coming from genetics that I had to have braces. My husband had to have braces. My daughter doesn't have excellent teeth, but this boy, his teeth are so good. Yeah. So so genetics don't play as big as a role as we might think they do. Um, I I definitely think a lot of it's taken out of proportion. I I hear that, oh, I'm overweight because of my genetics, or, you know, I I develop diabetes because type two diabetes because of my genetics. And unfortunately your parents fed you garbage. So that's how that happened. So if you want to bring genetics into it, that's, that's what happened. It's not technically genetics. It's your lifestyle, your environment, environmental changes are everything. So it's so great that you have your kids in such a good environment and you're feeding them the right kind of foods for them to uh, really enjoy. And, and I totally agree about cavities. I don't think fat and protein can cause a cavity. Um, when I've seen inflammation in my teeth, when I've tried to add fruit, we could see this in hunter gatherers as well. When they find a honey tree uh, or a honeycomb, it's not like they're not going to eat it. They're going to eat it and they're going to see all this inflammation. They're going to see all their teeth uh, have inflammation. So yeah, even fruit and honey can still cause inflammation when you have too much of it. So brings me to another question about organs. And we talked a little bit about the organ supplement. And it's funny because I hear a lot of stories about kids, really young kids liking organs naturally. You said your son loves meat. Um, and as we develop a palate for sugar, as we get older, the taste of organs doesn't really taste as good for us anymore. Does he do organs? And then general question, do you recommend organs for people? We don't bring organs into the house as much as we used to, but I'll tell you this, both kids have eaten liver and heart and loved it. Like totally loved it. Um, so well, like I said, there's like the one place that we go to that sells the raw butter. We can also get fresh organs there and it's a, it's a higher quality place. Again, it's a little bit of a drive from our house. We don't go there too often, but whatever we do, we'll pick them up. So again, it's maybe once a month or every other month. Right. And then do you recommend organs in anyone who's starting a carnivore diet? Does it depend? I, again, it's, it's comes down to how, what nutrients are we trying to replete in your system and how fast do you want to compress time? I think that organs can be useful for that. And, you know, if, and if it's something they enjoy eating, like if you really love eating liver, if you love eating a, like a liver pate, or if you make like a, you know, gluten-free steak and kidney pie or something like that, like, I think go for it, go for it. Definitely. Definitely. I think they're, I think they're overrated, but at the same time underlooked. I don't know how, um, but this the community really, really pushes organs and I, I push organs as well, but you also push a, a diversity uh in an animal product diet like i know a lot of carnivores that don't ever do seafood and like i think it's so important i think stuff like oysters mussels and shellfish shrimp salmon so important to have in your diet you don't have to do them every single day um i personally have upped it from one time a week to now i do it three times a week and i feel really good with just the the variety of of different foods because you know if you go back and look humans did eat a lot of fish we eat a lot of shellfish it was definitely in our diet. And it, it, you know, a lot of times we couldn't eat beef, we would eat that. So we weren't always eating beef 
just straight 24 seven. So I think especially if you are on a diet like the lion diet, that's when organs really come into play because you don't have that diversity anymore of eggs and, and shellfish. Yeah. You're going to be missing some choline. You're going to be missing some iodine. You're going to be missing some B12, They're not uh, B12. You're still going to get that. Um, there was one more that I was going to say, choline, iodine, folate, <laughs> folate. You can miss a little bit too. Zinc, zinc is pretty hard as well. Um, zinc can be really hard. Yeah, definitely. Um, you're going to, I mean, a lot of these minerals you're going to get from seafood. Um, and it's really interesting as far as why, and it has to do with the underground volcanoes and how they actually produce a lot of the, um, those inorganic compounds, but then the animals consume it. And by consuming that, they turn it into an organic compound that we can then bioavailably. Yeah. yeah it's ama amazing stuff. Uh, our body's very amazing. Very smart. Uh, I hear a lot about and something that you might get triggered by as well uh, as a doctor now who, who believes in this way is salt. And a lot of people limit salt or go low salt. Why is that an issue? And what do you recommend for salt? Why can low salt be potentially harmful for your body? It's such an interesting topic. I mean, there's a lot of people that follow a guy named, uh, I'm going to butcher his name, Ajunas Vonderplanets. And he is very much a proponent of completely raw meat with no salt on it. And for the most part, people aren't going to do a ton of damage by salting their food to taste. Your body's going to remove what it doesn't need. It's going to relatively stay in balance if, as long as you have functioning kidneys um, you're not going to necessarily damage them by eating too much salt again, but if you already had underfunctioning kidneys, it could exacerbate things. And which is an, again, I want to make this point really quick before we jump back into salt. Um, people will think that the carnivore diet is actually bad for their kidneys and it's not. So they think that the reason that this is brought up is that, uh, damaged kidneys will spill protein. So this idiot doctor is that thought that made this connection like, oh, well, consuming protein must hurt kidneys. It's not the case. I've actually reversed kidney disease in patients with a carnivore-based diet. Um, it's actually carbs that damage kidneys. So want to get that out of the way in case you do have newbies to this that are like, what about my kidneys? Um, you're going to be fine as long as you're limiting carbs. But if you're eating, just, if you're just eating more protein still in the presence of shitty carbs, you're going to hurt your kidneys. So don't do that. The carbs have right. to go. Protein will not hurt them whatsoever. Right. But with salt, again, the, there's feedback systems present in your kidneys that is going to regulate your salt balance. I tell people salt to taste to, so that your food tastes good and you should be fine. Like you don't have to overdo it. You don't have to avoid it. And I honestly, like I carry like a little Redmond sea salt in my purse so I can salt to taste and I have not had any issues. I don't have any issues with bloating. I don't have any issues with any like dry skin, like nothing. It's, yeah. it's, it's the way to do it. Especially if you aren't using any other um, seasonings, which we don't, I literally just use salt. I don't use pepper. I hate pepper. Um, and that's just a personal thing. Um, but yeah, if you're doing that, you're really not going to run into any problems. My, my first concern, uh, the thing on the top of my head a few years ago was, wasn't people who have a lot of salt when they correlate to high blood pressure. Have you seen, mm -hmm. have you seen blood pressure improve on carnivore? Yep. Yep. It definitely does. High blood pressure is usually a sugar issue. It's yeah. a carbohydrate issue. It's not a salt issue. Uh, things that have been demonized in the, in this medical system right now are the, actually the things that are good for you. Saturated fat's been demonized, like salt's been demonized and it's, it's just silly. It, it just, and it's just silly. I think that you're going to be totally fine if you're using salt, as long as you're getting, you're avoiding carbs. Yeah. And my last question, which you already just touched upon is saturated fat. Why is saturated fat so important for us? Why are we told to limit it? Um, and what can we do about it? Yes. So this is like a nerdy thing. Um, if you actually look up a diagram of a cell membrane, you'll know that every single cell in your body is made up of something called a phospholipid bilayer. So a layer of two fats, most of those fats in every single cell is a saturated fat, which means it's kind of a straight line. And then it also has some monounsaturated fatty acids, which is a line and a kind of a kink. What we run into is when we're, so again, our body is going to prefer that and the monounsaturated fats, which is going to be the most of what we actually consume in an animal-based diet, because again, our body is going to use what we put into it. So to remake every single cell, because eventually cells die in our body, we have to have the proper substrates coming in. So we have to have the saturated fat coming in to remake those phospholipid bilayers of every single cell. Where we run into an issue is when we start consuming a lot of these polyunsaturated fatty acids. And they kind of look like zigzags, okay? 
So when your body is taking this in, it has no other choice than to use it to actually rebuild all of your cells. Cause your cells are going to die. No matter what the rebuild has to happen, no matter what. Now, if your body is only using these zigzaggy ones to rebuild it, you're going to end up with cellular dysfunction. That cell is not going to function as properly. Well, all these cells make up your organ systems. Your organ systems make up your body. This is how inflammation starts in a very basic way. Now, of course, one consumption of seed oils one single time is not going to be the thing that actually, you know, sets things off. But when you're doing this consistently and you actually remake a new body every seven years, all the cells are going to get replaced. What's going to happen in seven years is you're going to have pretty stark disease. One of the ways that people can actually tell if they have a diet that is too high in seed oils or polyunsaturated fatty acids is if you've somehow over the last few years, or even before that developed an intolerance to sunlight. So uh, skin cells that are remade with these polyunsaturated fatty acids are actually going to have a really, really terrible time in the sun. You're going to burn very, very easily because again, the cell membrane actually loses its, its integrity. So my kids, this is actually an interesting anecdote. My children, we live in Arizona. They were in the pool all summer, every single day, two to three hours at a time. Neither of them ever burned. We never used sunscreen once. Right. And it's because all their cell membranes are made of saturated fats because they've had this healthy diet. And we're the same way. My husband and I, we don't use sunscreen. We go out in the sun. We really don't burn. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we, we don't practice safe sunning, right? Like we're not going to still stay out for five hours at a time. But when you're in these measurable amounts where an average person would burn, we won't. So tell you to look for that. But again, this is one of the, like the main drivers of disease that a lot of people are not paying attention to is just how the consumption of polyunsaturated fatty acids disrupts how you make new cells, which then disrupts all your organ systems in your whole body. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's the biggest reason to stray away from all polyunsaturated fat um, and to focus on animal fats, saturated fat, pure tallow, ghee, butter, the most important things you can put in your life for sure. And and you and I can both agree that fat is the most essential macronutrient. Um, so make sure you're getting the right ones. And uh, it was amazing having you on today. My, my last, last question is where can people find you and how can they contact you, your Instagram, YouTube, all that good stuff. Yeah. So I'm most active on my Instagram, which is just at Dr. Solt, D-R-S-O-L-T. Um, from there, I have a link tree where you can find links to pretty much everything else. You can find links to my clinical website. You can find links to our oyster supplement. Um, you can find links to our YouTube channel, our free Facebook group. Everything's just kind of laid out in there. There you go. And uh, you can find everything, by the way, also in the description of this video for those watching. So Dr. Salt, it was a pleasure having you on and, uh, and thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you for having me. We'll talk soon. Yeah, definitely.